You are listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from our friends. Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness. And we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. And this is Reverend Anna Galladay. And we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for all of us to get our hands dirty. Pastor. Dr. Robin. It is supposed to be spring, but we've got the heat on. (laughs) I'm even wearing socks. My mother, who lives in Virginia, in Northern Virginia, sent a photo yesterday of about four inches of snow covering their tulips. (laughs) And I thought, this just doesn't feel like it should be happening. (laughs) Yeah, and... You know, it's been cold and rainy here, and now it's just cold. And Yeah. Yeah, it's at least sunshiny here, but it is it is cold outside for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, it's April 19th when we're recording this. It's Tuesday, yes. which is our regular recording day. Yes. And it was just Easter. Yes. Last weekend, which... There were many holidays that transpired this weekend, Easter, Passover, Ramadan, and the Theravada New Year. Yeah. And spring. I actually loved that. I loved that there was such a convergence of all of our, a a multitude of of faiths and celebrations and um, remembrances. Like, it actually felt really good to, like, have it all kind of conspire at one time. I loved it. And you were in town this weekend. I was. Getting your hands dirty like you always do. And I'm wondering if we could share a little bit about what you were doing here, what you did, and then sort of extend from that experience why it's important what you were doing. Yeah. Um, so I came up on Sunday, um, on Easter Sunday. I was actually glad for once that I didn't have a um, Easter sermon to preach or, you know, all of the multitude of work that comes with uh, Holy Week, um, you know, as a part of my, <laughs> as a part of my day on Sunday, um, right. because I um, came up on Sunday and joined with a group of folks who marched from Riverbend Maximum Security Prison, which is the prison in Nashville that is also the state penitentiary where Tennessee's death row inmates are housed. Mm -hmm. And uh, we marched from Riverbend to the state capitol in Nashville, which is about a nine-mile walk, to call on Governor Bill Lee to stay the execution of Oscar Frank Smith, who is set to be executed on Thursday, April 21st, which um, will be, will be after this, this episode is published. And so our prayer and our call for mercy on, on, for, for Governor Bill Lee uh, was to, uh, you know, t- look at alternatives to the death penalty. Um, now, m- some of you who are listening may have perspectives on how you feel about justice and retribution and a 
you know, a, a call for or a, the, the response to violent crime. Um, you know, this this action was led by an organization called Death Penalty Action, which is a really is probably the kind of forefront organization in the country that is doing work around um, seeking alternatives to the death penalty. Of course, the, the, the desire is that there is an abolition of the death, right. death penalty completely. But um, we recognize that in some cases, and, and quite frankly, I think for, for, for a while into our future, abolition will not be realized. And so if abolition is not realized, what are the alternatives to death? And so I joined with about 40 other folks, um, a much bigger turnout than we thought we would have for the March for Mercy. Um, and uh, I uh, realized that I uh, haven't done enough cardio in the, in the last yeah. several yeah. years. <laughs> um, but, you know, also it was a really, it was a really touching experience. I, I, you know, I am a I am a child of uh, Christianity. Mm-hmm. I follow a man who was brutalized and executed by the state. Um, I read the stories every year and, and, and oftentimes more than that of how the governor at the time, Pontius Pilate, um, indicted and convicted and murdered Jesus, um, within a, a short period of time because of Jesus's outcries against power and politic and the mistreatment of of others. Right. And now I am watching the governor of my home state, Bill Lee, um, be kind of sink into that or slide into that role of Pontius Pilate and um, allow Oscar Smith to die on Thursday right. night. And my hope is that um, even if Oscar Smith spends the rest of his life in prison, I mean, he's a 72-year-old man who um, has been on death row for a, a long time. Uh, you know, his, his murder is not the answer to his crimes. Right. Right. Yeah, I, I, I remember in high school – I began to wrestle with the death penalty and I was going to a Southern Baptist church at the time and, you know, asked my friends, what do you think about the death penalty? Do you think it's right or wrong? And the, they would always use scripture as a way to justify the, the death penalty Eye for an eye. Yep. That's exactly what they would say to me, an eye for an eye. And there was this kind of expectation to just believe that and move on. And I remember kind of pushing back and saying, but is it? And I, it wasn't until I got to college and then later in seminary where I began to think about, are there just ways – to kill. And I was thinking about this largely through the, the lens of animal and meat consumption and was vegetarian for uh, seven years while I lived in Chicago until I learned about grass fed and ethically sourced in small farms. And so I, I have really been on this journey of trying to, reshape our theological imagination around punishment and capital punishment at that. And Shane Claiborne, who is a friend of the podcast and a friend of the Activist Theology Project, texted me 
he like did all the things. He texted me, he emailed me, he sent me a Twitter DM and an Instagram DM. Like all the same message. He was like, you know, I've got to get this message out. And he was telling me he was going to be in Nashville and invited me down to the protest. Doug Paget, uh, same same thing. And I was planning on being there, but I had work to do on Sunday that prohibited me from leaving the couch. And I was engrossed in my work. But I was watching your IG lives as you were posting on the route. And, um, you know, it was very moving to see so many people out uh, doing this work and bearing witness to an incarcerated life. And I think you're right that we won't see abolition in the near future. But I think that abolishing the death penalty is a lot closer than um, – the abolishment of prisons or or the police. Right. I've been really concerned with the ways in which South Carolina has resurrected the very old, ancient way of capital punishment by firing squad. Um, pharmaceuticals are trying to intervene because they don't want their medicines being used in the death penalty. And so some of those medicines are now very, very hard to acquire, but we really got to think about what is justice is justice intended or meant to be punitive or should justice be something like transformational or transformative. Right. Right. And until we as a society and as a culture and as a democracy, find our way in that conversation, we will still be battling this topic of capital punishment and incarceration and, and police. Um, We really, you know, we really don't know how to have a conversation around justice. And a lot of us don't know the, the, points of departure and the roots of how social justice came about. It really came about when um, in, in Europe, the, the church began to give a living wage to people who were working so that laborers could have money to eat. And so this this idea of justice on a social scale became something that was rooted in Christian practice. But we have we have really adulterated social justice and made it into an industrial complex right. where there's no nuance, where there's more punitive justice than transformational justice or transformative justice. And I'm so glad that you were out there. Um, I'm sorry that you had to walk nine miles. I know that it was windy <laughs> and, and chilly, but um, I'm glad that you were out there and I'm glad that you had the experience and I'm glad that we're able to talk about it. I, I do worry um, as, as the rise of censorship globally and sort of the rise of propaganda in, in other countries increase how will we have this conversation about justice? Um, I just saw the Washington Post article about the libs on TikTok and how one woman is shaping the far right's discourse on TikTok. And um, while I am a proponent of free speech, I am not a proponent of speech that enacts violence or that promotes violence. And so I am really curious, how do we do justice on a collective scale that doesn't reinscribe or reinforce punitive justice? The church has a history of punitive justice. The state has a history of punitive justice. Even our atonement theories are rooted in punitive justice. And so I think it's time that we really start having a deeper, more robust conversation about what is justice and and what does social justice mean? Yeah, I don't disagree with you at all. I think I'm, I'm struck by a few things that I've, I've been experiencing these last few weeks as I've been kind of 
embedded in um, both my my research of kind of where what Tennessee plans to do this year regarding um, the killing of of men on death row, as well as um, the hypocrisy that is really laden within you know all of the all of the conversations. Um, there are um, there are more than fifty prisoners on death row in Tennessee right now, and Tennessee is set to execute five of them this year. Right, and part of the reason that that number is so high is because co- we we did get a reprieve from killings because COVID right um, closed down death row on many states in many right. states um, and Tennessee has has just now Oscar Smith will be the first um, should he be put to death um, to die um, since uh, 2000 and February of 2020 but you know we have this governor in Bill Lee and and many of you in other states like Tennessee um whether it's Texas or Oklahoma or Alabama or you know a, a multitude of other states who are Florida who are kind of inflicting what you believe to be um justice for life <laughs> um are you're you're looking at topics like the 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 execution of of prisoners and uh, abortion and the punitive aspect of for, for doctors and and teachers and and parents as it relates to uh, transgender right. um, children and there's a radical disconnect between who you say you are, um, and who you act like you are, right? You cannot be pro-life. <laughs> you cannot be a state that prides itself on pro-life and pro-birth. And at the same time, be a state that affirms pro-death. Right. Only when it relates to what you believe are justice-based issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, as you're talking about the our concept and our understanding of justice and how we have mis, misconstrued and also really bastardized our 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 tenets of justice over the years, the hypocrisy that is laden within these states is. I mean, it's really. I mean, it's eye rolling. It's yeah. I, you know, I, I'm I'm I am watching as. Oklahoma attempts to implement the harshest abortion laws in all of our country. Right. And kills prisoners. Right. On death row. Um, it may sound obtuse of me. It, it, it may sound naive of me, but I literally don't get it. Mm-hmm. Like, I can't understand the reconciliation in the minds of our public officials and in the minds of the evangelical right. I, I don't understand the justification. Yeah. I mean, do you, do you, do you have a perspective on that? Do you, do you have a, an understanding of how it can be so kind of blatantly opposite and, and yet they feel as confident in it as they do? Well, I think it comes down to power and, yeah. and how the state, which is composed mostly of legislature, legislator, legislative bodies, which are men, cis-bodied men, is there is, there is a sense that white-bodied cisgendered men have the authority to control other people which shows up in war which shows up in business it shows up in the ways that our liturgies are constructed and 
you know, years ago, I, when I was in college, I said, I'm pro-life, which means I believe that women or people with uteruses have a choice. It means that there is no such thing as just war. And people were really confused. They were like, how can you be pro-life and be pro-abortion? And I said, I I didn't say I was pro-abortion. I said that women and people who have uteruses have choice and agency to make a decision about themselves and their bodies. And that no institution should be controlling those bodies. And, and, and then, you know, there was, there was, you know, 9-11 happened when I was in college. And I remember I was in seminary at the time when Bush decided to invade Iraq. And I was at a United Methodist seminary and, you know, people were on both sides of this issue at a United Methodist seminary. And, and, you know, I remember thinking, you know, I'm from Texas, George W. Bush is the president now. I I understand this political move. It's about domination and dominionism. And, and I, I was like, I don't affirm this war. This is not just, and I, I tend to err on the side of pacifism. Like, um, I don't think that – I think that there are different ways to solve conflict right. than, than pursuing war. And, and we live in a perpetual state of the war machine. I mean, we're waging war on the poor. We're waging war on – black bodies and brown bodies and immigrant bodies. And so I, I really take, I'm really into militant pacifism. I mean, I write about that in, in my first book. My sense is that, you know, the, the moral majority, which is the Christian right, they were very clever when they um, took up, the pro-life stance and they've been able to organize themselves around a kind of moral framework that is puritanical in many respects. And, and, and it doesn't allow the left or anyone who opposes the right to use language because that language has been so conscripted by a particular majority of 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 the United States. And so, you know, I think it goes back to to a question that that we have here a lot, which is what do we mean by justice? Because I, I think that the Christian right and those who are like Christian nationalists think that they are doing the just thing. And and I don't know that they know that they're causing harm. And manifold harm. And so I think that we've got to have, we've got to be able to have a conversation around justice in a way that allows people to, to have the conversation without reacting at every moment. And I, I just don't think there's been so much harm done and there's been no repair work in our communities, which is why we're unable to have a conversation about justice, which is why politically we're so divided, which is why I think that, you know, I've said this before, we don't know how to be human with one another. And, and in large part, it's because we're just reacting to this language that we're using and, and we get nowhere. Right. You, you know, there's a, as you're talking more about justice, I, and I'm thinking about kind of the, the way that the activist theology project and, and, and you and I as individuals kind of approach community, um, justice as we have been describing, justice as we have, have seen uh, from a, punitive standpoint as it relates to our court systems, 
um, is extremely, it, it, it is, it is two-sided. It is right or wrong. Um, it poses defense against the prosecution. It seeks a, 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 a finiteness, a binary in its decision-making. Um, and then it renders a verdict mm-hmm. that although, you know, I mean, yes, I mean, parole and all of these things can kind of come into play. It, it renders a decision that is, again, also kind of finite and binary. Right. And then even if parole or if the opportunity parole for parole comes into play, that process then also becomes binary. <laughs> right. Um, whereas justice in a community setting, not in a court setting or in a, a prosecutorial or a punitive setting, justice in a community setting forces us to actually look at one another. Right. To encounter one another, to engage with one another, to see one another in our humanity, to to have conversations, to take responsibility, to seek forgiveness, to engage in conflict in ways that are, um, that, that build and increase our capacity to be human with one another, not to simply identify a right or wrong facet of the work and, 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 you know, move on from it as if it were, um, uh, you know, a final decision. Right. We do not have a justice system in this country. And, and quite frankly, we don't have a justice. I mean, we don't, we don't believe in the, that kind of justice in many, many aspects of our, our world. I mean, that's, you know, there are school systems that are, you know, not doing justice that way. There are, um, you know, families that are not doing justice that way, but we, we don't have, a, a, a form or a conversation around justice that asks us to encounter or be in relationship with in order to repair harm, right. in, order to, in order to engage one another in ways that set us up to see each other and to, and to understand each other. Now, that's not to say, and, and anytime I have been a part of that kind of conflict resolution, that kind of conflict engagement, that's not to say that those, those scenarios or those settings are without judgment, without opinion, without volatility, <laughs> um, you know, without emotion. I mean, all of those things are still very real and very tangible within the relationality and the encountering process of us seeing one another. But the difference is that it doesn't stop there. It, that is just the beginning. We use that, that piece of conflict and that piece of engagement to then move us into a space where community asks us to actually start to repair the damage. Right. Right. And, and we don't have that in almost any aspect of justice-based systems in this, in this country. No. I mean, and I wonder what it would look like if we really were people who looked at our, our justice system as less of a binary mm-hmm. and more multifaceted and forced from the very beginning, the relationality conversation and the relationality right. engagement right. right from the get-go. Right, right. How would that change us? I have to think it would be remarkable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like white people who claim reverse racism because they think – they think the binary they think they think racism is a binary right and and so it 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 really is a kind of world view of 
where how do we hold binaries yeah. and and how do we how do we embrace an ideology of multiplicity right. versus singularities right and rightness and wrongness are not finite terms right you know there there is there is no there like there is nothing about rightness or wrongness that is only one way or another and i mean you know i'm 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 being extremely conscientious to not use terms that refer to color mm -hmm. in this because i think that we get ourselves into trouble when we refer to um the binary of um you know dense color and and without color right <laughs> um and and i like i don't want to fall into that trap but this this perspective of rightness versus wrongness or this perspective of a a binary in you know good versus bad has really done damage to right. the community's ability to be with and for one another in the face of conflict. Yeah. And that goes for even these humans who are sitting on death row and, you know, for Oscar Smith, who is now in the process that Tennessee calls death watch, Mm-hmm. which is this three-day period before execution where um, he has, you know, been, he has been forced to say goodbye to his friends. Right. He's been forced to give away all of his belongings and he's been as escorted to a building um, that is the building in which he will die. And, um, to sit for three days and think about the lack of relationality mm -hmm. that has led to his impending death. Um, and do they still, do they still get a meal of their choice? Uh, they do. They do. Um, so it's a mixed message it's, it's, in my, yes. in my mind. Yeah. Right. You, you say goodbye, you give everything away, you go into isolation but we'll feed you whatever you want. Right. Like we want your belly full um, so that you're thinking less about how hungry you are. Right. And more about what is, you know, intended to, to happen to you. Yeah. Um, you know, as we were celebrating Easter at the end of our March on Sunday, uh, we were surrounded by 15 hand-painted um, images. There is a, a group of death row inmates, some of which are no longer alive, um, either by the government's, either by, by execution, they are no longer alive, or still by the government's neglect, they are no longer alive. Right. Um, who painted... 15 images that reflect the stations of the cross. So the walk that Jesus uh, takes from the time he is accused um, to the time that he dies on, on the cross. Mm -hmm. the, you know, these paintings are powerful and they're, they're hauntingly beautiful in, in the way that they tell the story of the crucifixion. But as we were standing there at the at the courthouse in <laughs> at the war memorial, which you know right. in and of itself is um, telling that that's you know the space where we um, ended our journey, and and it's not named that for I mean it's named that on purpose, of course. Mm -hmm. Our friend Doug Paget talked a little bit about his the time that he was able to spend inside Tennessee's death row several years ago. Um, mm -hmm. He was able to go in and um, meet some of the inmates and uh, share communion with them and, and share some uh, uh, worship services and, and kind of be engaged in, in their lives for a day. And the guards um, escorted he and a few other folks from death row over to this building where Oscar Smith is now housed. 
and is awaiting his execution. And Doug said, as I walked from cell block two, which is where the, where death row is to this outbuilding on a sidewalk, a paved sidewalk, there were signs to the left and right of me in the grass that said, do not step on the grass. Mm. And Doug said the message that I got was that the state of Tennessee cares more about their grass dying than they do about their residents dying. Right, right. And how would it feel to be a prisoner walking from cell block two to the building where you will die and recognizing that the grass is better taken care of than you are? Right. And the grass holds more value right. in the eyes of this state right. than you have ever held. I am, I am worried for, I continue to be worried for us. I am worried for Oscar. Um, I mean, he is one of the only things that has been on my mind over the last few days. Um, Ironically enough, there will be two executions that will happen at exactly the same time on Thursday. Um, there is an execution scheduled in Texas in the very same hour, at the very same time that Oscar Smith will be executed in Tennessee. And so, um, at, you know, there, that lament feels even more... Yeah. palpable that the the just the 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 density of of both of those deaths happening within minutes of each other yeah um but i i really am i really am struggling with the hypocrisy with our lack of desire for community and connection um and with the true, I mean, the, the barbaricness of, mm-hmm. of these executions and, and what it means. And I, um, I, I recognize that my uh, demeanor on this episode is really <laughs> like full of lament, but I really, I just don't know how else to be this week. Yeah. Um, I just can't seem to rid my, like my, being my my mm-hmm. entire body feels as if um it is like being constricted yeah in 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 many ways and i and i know why it is i recognize it and also i um th- there there's nothing that i can do about it at this point i mean it's it's what i write about in activist theology that we live in this perpetual holy saturday moment not knowing whether there will be new life and i feel like all of our efforts in these moments to allow people with uteruses to have choice to abolish the death penalty to eradicate police brutality to safely have Uh, refugees and migrants have safe passage across borders that all of this is is a holy saturday moment and we live with the uncertainty of the not yet right and that is a really hard place to be and you know if if the state can kill god then the state can do whatever the state wants to do. And the state is doing whatever it wants to do. And I think our job as people who believe in another possible world, who want to bring heaven to earth, is to sit in the Holy Saturday moments and our collective will for another possible world will bring new life. I just have to believe that. Same. It's yeah. hoping against all hopelessness. Yeah. 
And we have to keep telling the story. We have to keep doing the work. We have to keep building community. Um, we just have to. Because as as you gave us for Christmas an image, an art piece that says community is resistance. Uh-huh. And I think we have to not only resist white-bodied supremacy of self-sustainability and hyper-individualism, but we have to resist the ways in which white-bodied supremacy forces a relationality of transactions and extractive labor and exploitative relationships and lean into stewarding community in, in every way possible. Right. Yeah, I will. Um, I know that all of you will join us as we um, kind of move through this week. And you'll you also recognize kind of the lament that Dr. Robin and I are feeling. Um, we have the ability and the capacity to to do this differently and to to be better versions of um, ourselves as community. Um, I yeah. just pray that we find and and engage and embrace those possibilities sooner rather than later. Yeah. Um, before we go, before we end this episode, um, I would like to share some good news with our listeners. I know yeah. we have had, this has been a very heavy episode and one full of, as I said earlier, lament, but um, many of you will remember uh, last fall when Dr. Robin and I went to McAllen, Texas to be a part of um, some work that an organization called Practice Mercy is doing alongside the folks from Vote Common Good and um, the bicycle ride that was done from San Diego all the way to um, the edge of the Texas border with uh, Mexico to call attention to uh, the treatment of uh, migrants and those who are trying to seek asylum and, and their inability to get into the country. While we were there, we had the opportunity to meet Alma Ruth, who is the uh, director of Practice Mercy. And Alma Ruth has been working with several families, um, women who have very young children, who have been living on the streets um, in Reynosa, Mexico, for um, more than a year now. Um, they have um, had, they, they, you know, they have been fed by volunteers. They have been subjected to the elements. They have been attempting to seek asylum. And Alma Ruth and her organization have been working with them. And things have felt very, very bleak and very uncertain for them. And we got an update this morning that in the middle of the night last night, Alma Ruth was able to successfully navigate these humans through the border to get them temporary visas and to set up their transportation for them to move from the McAllen border to reunite with their families who are in Alabama and Oklahoma and a few other places across the country. And she sent us a photo of herself with like a selfie of her with all of these beautiful humans that we got to know and meet and, and cry with and, and celebrate with. And uh, she sent us a photo of them on the United States side of um, the border. And it is, it was like, it was the kind of, like infusion in my heart that I needed this morning. Um, it, it, it was really great news to hear yeah. that these folks have found their way across and that temporary visas have been issued. Um, mm. And I just thought our listeners would really love to hear that because you all were a part of that work and you heard us record live from McAllen and tell those yeah. stories. And so um, – I just wanted to give that update to thank you. Yeah, all of the folks that listen. I was on the phone with our friend Mark Mems last night when Alma Ruth telephoned me, and I just know to pick up her phone call because she's calling to give me an update or ask me to do something. Right. 
And so I said, Mark, I, I need I need to call you back. So I picked up Almarus phone uh, call and she told me that they were going to be crossing. And I asked, did Jason know? Because I've been corresponding with Jason since we were in uh, Reynosa together. And, you know, it, it has just been, I mean, I have come up against brick wall after brick wall. And here's what's crazy. I She called me one night and she was like, please, Robin, uh, Jason is being hunted by the cartel and we need to get him out. And they don't prioritize men. They prioritize women and children. Men right. are a low priority. Right. So I put out on Twitter that I need an immigration attorney stat for uh, an endangered human. And people pointed me to attorneys. And so I DM'd with attorneys, immigration attorneys. And, and, and they all said, you have to find someone privately who will do this. Every NGO or nonprofit is beyond capacity. And that was like the same message that I was getting when I would reach out to people. And so I got the news on um, Friday, I think, a couple Fridays ago, that there was an attorney that picked up the case and that worked all night to get the forms together and submit it. And so now it was just waiting for a time to cross. And get them COVID tested and whatnot. And so Alma Ruth called last night. I picked up her call. She told me it was happening. So I immediately texted Jason and I said, you know, text me as soon as you get across. And he was like, I'm already there. I'm just waiting for Alma Ruth. And so I texted him this morning and I said, Como te va? How's it going? He was like, it's my first day in the United States. So um, I have been in touch with our friends from South Carolina and Anna, you and I might want to make a trip to South Carolina to yeah. see Jason. That's probably the easiest uh, visit that we could make. Right. And I thought maybe we could take him to Goodwill and get some clothes for him or something. And that could be our contribution to his well-being. Um, yeah. It's a really, a really sad story about Jason who is who fled recruitment from gang violence and from gangs in Honduras, all of his friends were killed. Yep. He gets to Reynosa. He finds a job. He, he was working as like in a kitchen somewhere trying to make money. Uh-huh. And then he was being hunted by the cartel. And one of his friends, I don't know if you know this, but one of his friends was murdered there at Reynosa and he was next. And so it was like, vital yeah. to get him across the border. And, you know, it just, you know, when I talk about God has a preferential option for the underside, this is what I'm talking about. Yes. Th- this is what justice looks like. Yes. Um, this is the work of yeah. activist theology, creating another, uh, another imaginable world with one another. And so, um, I hope that we get to visit with Jason when he gets to where he's going in South Carolina. And um, I'm excited to be able to visit him in in a place and help him get his family here and whatnot. And of course, you know, now the sort of second leg of the journey of like finding a job, getting housing, making enough money to pay for your housing, you know, um, but they've made it across and now we work to get them naturalized and, and a citizen and exactly so i'm excited to continue on that journey with practice mercy and um be in community with these folks because together we we are better together that that is really the message here and it took a community effort to get them across the border and you know the best that i could do was raise awareness on my social media platforms um and now we wait and see how we can help on this end. 
Yeah. And if community can do that, friends, then community can seek another way of justice for those who are on death row. It is possible. There are ways in which we are showing how it's possible. And um, I'm just going to rest in that possibility right now because that's that's where that's where my heart that's where my heart wants to sit. So. Yeah, and if I know that Alma Ruth said that they need donations, and so if you could give up a cup of coffee um, or your lunch out and spare twenty dollars, would you give to Practice Mercy? They're a five hundred one c three nonprofit, and maybe we can include their link in the show notes. And I don't know, maybe maybe as a team we could give a little bit of money to help. Um, cause I, I, I mean, a, as a, from a family history standpoint who had history that crossed borders, I'm passionate about, um, the humanitarian crisis that is at our Southern border and have been for many years. Um, so if you can give up a few dollars, please give to practice mercy and, and together, you know, we can be community and resist the bullshit and create the kind of world that we long to inhabit. Yes. Friends, you can do that at practicemercy.org. We will include that address in the show notes, uh, just in case you want a direct link. Uh, don't forget to follow us and please do engage with the app at atporch.com. Um, we have lots of fun things coming down the pike there. There's a lot of momentum building and we're really excited about what's about to happen. Um, do join us next week. Um, we have a guest that you're going to love and we're really excited to continue to share how we have and continue to, and how you can and continue to connect the dots in the work. Um, thanks for being alongside us as we do this, Dr. Robin, until next time. Let's model, let's emulate the words of Desmond Tutu and become prisoners of hope. We want to thank you for listening this week. We encourage you to share this podcast with your community. If you enjoy us and our work in the world, please give us five stars on your podcast platform. Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.com and click on podcast. We can only do this work with the help of you, our listeners. You have no idea how much even a small monthly or one-time gift means to this work. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by Delta Ray. Our sound editor is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds. I get my hands dirty. I show up so early. They show me no mercy. So I just keep working. Maybe God could save me. Oh, my boss might pay me. You are listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from our friends.